The views in this do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, Student Media, or NCSU. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. afternoon, Raleigh, and welcome to this week's Eye on the Triangle on 88.1 WKNC slash HD1 Raleigh. I am Nick Weaver. And I'm Marissa Jordan. First up on today's episode, we have an interview with the founders of East Coast Hemp Supply uh, by Will Mayo and Matt Schneider. And following that, we have the fifth episode of Gen Ed with Colleen Kenan Ferguson. Uh, this week's episode covers the transfer student experience at NC State. And after the break, we'll have local trivia tidbit a tribute to 9-11, and our take on the Hopscotch Music Festival from this past weekend. That's all coming up in just a second, so stay tuned. Hello, 88.1 WKNC. You are tuned into Eye on the Triangle. I am hosting this show with my co-host. My name is Will Mayo. My name is Matt Schneider. And today we are going to talk about cannabis. We have two special guests with us today. Uh, will you please introduce yourselves? Savannah Richardson. And hi, my name is Steven Taylor, co-founder of Visco's Hemp Supply. The way I understand it, uh, hemp and marijuana are kind of lumped together and uh, creating a more so a, a social divide between these two products. Uh, could be potentially beneficial to those seeking the benefits of hemp products, correct? Absolutely. Uh, cannabis sativa is actually the right terminology when we talk about uh, hemp as well. Um, but here's the distinction between the two. Marijuana is uh, cannabis that is above 0.3% THC, while industrial hemp is uh, distinguished as having 0.3% THC or less. So it's actually non-psychoactive. And so that's kind of what, what's going on in the state right now is that... Um, with the 2014 Farm Bill um, in effect since a couple years ago, we've seen these pilot programs to start um, being established in states. And now that North Carolina is kind of on the forefront of it uh, since 2015, uh, we've already had plant seeds in the ground. And now uh, we're looking forward to harvesting on all of the uh, farms here in this uh, first year of the pilot program. Okay, so Stephen, I'm I'm more of a layman when it comes to um, cannabis and hemp, etc. Um, but let me just like reiterate what you said and you tell me if I'm following you correctly. Um, so basically I'm under the impression that hemp is something that I can like get a t-shirt made of. It's a raw material and cannabis is a plant that has possible psychoactive um, effects and maybe medicinal effects. Um, am I, am I, um, Am I off base or where? Just maybe you can correct me for a little bit. Or you to make a correction, yeah. uh, cannabis is the overarching term for cannabis sativa, uh, cannabis radialis, and cannabis indica. So hemp is from the cannabis sativa plant. So the only difference between hemp and marijuana is the THC percentage and how the plant is grown. So other than that, you are correct. It's just cannabis is the the genus, it's the the name of the actual plant. And then hemp is classified with 0.3% less THC. 
and and then in turn the plant grows a little bit differently to have stronger fibers and in the stalk. Okay, thanks for clearing that up. So, what are the various uses of hemp? Uh, obviously, the fibers can create uh, types of paper or even types of cloth. Uh, is there are there any other hidden uses that we might not yeah, know this about? This is a very versatile crop uh, for the state. Um, you can use it for uh, textiles uh, when you process the stalks for the fiber. Uh, you can even go into grain and uh, harvest it for the seed. Uh, the seed's actually very healthy for humans to consume. It, um, it has the perfect balance of omega-3, 6s, and 9s for your daily diet, so it's a perfect protein for uh, a lot of vegans out there. Uh, we can even go into the roots of the plant, which is a uh, uh, has there's not a lot of studies have that have been done on it, but um, and then as well as the um, flower of the plant. Now, the flower of the plant is where um, things get kind of interesting. We have to make sure that it's below 0.3% THC, so it's hemp, right? So we stay in the legal boundaries in North Carolina. And there's a lot of potential within the, in the flower because, um, one, there's a lot of uh, things called cannabinoids. Cannabinoids are the uh, natural chemical compound found in the, in the hemp plant. So uh, one that we talk about a lot is CBD or cannabidiol. Uh, it's shown to have a lot of uh, therapeutic benefits with people with uh, multiple sclerosis, um, all different types of ailments, including epilepsy. I know there's a uh, there's a company called GW Pharmaceuticals who's currently working on a uh, FDA-approved uh, medicine spray for children with epilepsy. So it's kind of going full circle here in terms of, of everything can be used for, even biofuels uh, and construction materials for uh, greenhouses. So I, I just want to kind of back up a little bit and get a little bit more history about the two of you. Um, how did you guys become interested in this? So I became interested in the hemp plant when the 2014 farm bill was passed and it opened the doors up to actually grow hemp and for hemp research. So I actually started a 501c3 um, nonprofit think tank that focused on economic development. And our campaign was called Love Cures, where we fundraised for um, cancer patients and patients with um, ailments where certain cannabinoids such as CBD, which is called cannabidiol, could help. So I was really fueled by the passion to actually help patients. And since then, I've been really active in the hemp industry. And then I met Stephen, and we have since then branched off into East Coast Hemp Supply. Yeah, before um, before we even started hemp farming, it was last year where I met her at um, Hemp HempX in Asheville. HempX is actually a hemp-centric festival. Uh, it brings together like vendors from across the uh, the state uh, to showcase their products and uh, really just um, have a good time. Uh, so that's how we kind of met. And uh, ever since then, we've been on this journey to really um, get the universities more involved and to really spark some more research so we can um, eventually uh, expand this market and uh, for the state. So would you would you say your your primary motive and interest? would be um, economic in nature, not necessarily from a selfish perspective, but from for uh, the benefits of, of the state economy, et cetera. Yes, this is, we definitely have a more humanitarian approach than most people, which is why we're very focused in maintaining our interest in the industry because there's a lot of uh, the older generation who just see money signs and we are more interested and helping out the community. Uh, I understand that 
The 2014 Farm Bill allowed for the cultivation of hemp and the research thereof for its potential raw material and medicinal benefits. Uh, Could legalization of marijuana aid in the cause of hemp, or is it even necessary? Uh, Can you shed some light on that? For the most part, hemp and marijuana cultivation have to be separated. Um, because of the way that the plants are grown. You can't grow hemp and marijuana outside in the same field because it will cross-pollinate and then you will have a different plant. So the legalization of marijuana throughout the state has spread a lot of light onto the cannabis plant. So I think the legalization of marijuana has brought more light to the fact of why is hemp still a Schedule One substance. So it's it's more of a uh, attention grabber for people. Uh, people are seeing that marijuana is legalized in certain states, and uh, if that's the case, why can't we grow hemp and not even have to go over these legal barriers in order to get the raw material and medicinal benefits that we can from this plant? Well, the um, our current drug laws restricted and stifled the industry, like I've said, ever since, uh, you know, 1937 with the Marijuana Tax Act and then 1970, the Controlled Substances Act. So when you have these, uh, you've got states that are now beginning to, you know, legalize, you know, for instance, recreational marijuana, uh, even medicinal marijuana, and then you got these hemp-friendly states at the same time. So it's confusing because, uh, one, there's 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 really, there's no regulation, you know, we can't do any banking with uh with anyone if we wanted to, you know, really expand our, uh, our company. Uh, there's just a lot of barriers to overcome. And so uh, I do agree that the, the hemp industry is uh, growing as well as the, uh, the, the industry as well as marijuana with the THC. So, Steven, are, are you saying that if you tried to engage in commerce um, of any sorts right now that federal officials would would put a hold on your bank account yes a, a lot of uh cannabis uh businesses are experiencing these um pitfalls um i have personal experience with that with um starting my 501c3 nonprofit we try to open our bank account with pnc bank and they immediately um closed our bank account i pretty sure took the funds away that were already in the account and personally messaged us and said, we do not deal with anything pertaining to marijuana. And so trying to relay back that hemp and marijuana are two different plants was a big issue for us. How can we help society understand that hemp and marijuana are different products? What what can we do as individuals to kind of create a gap between these two things in the public eye? Well, education's the most important thing for this industry. We have a lot of uneducated people on the matter, and what it boils down to is uh, what's what's right and what's what's wrong. you got to really be careful what's out there on the Internet. There's a lot of misinformation about the uh, the industry itself. And so if more people are educated, then we can all come together to bring more awareness to the fact that this is we're talking about cannabis at the end of the day. You know, we're talking about something that grows out of the ground and has been cultivated for thousands of years. I mean, it's 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 absolutely ridiculous how it is 
um, been criminalized here in America. Uh, it's, it's almost surreal. I mean, it's almost like banning wheat or something in a sense, like or banning tomatoes. It's like something that's so uh, with so much potential that could help us. That's really just being stifled by these uh, current drug laws that are really, really old and really need to be um, taken away. So before we go into what you guys were up to a couple of days ago, I want to go back to Savannah really quick and just ask you, basically, you started this uh, nonprofit organization. So have you reached out to any state, local, or federal political activists to carry your message to the North Carolina General Assembly? Um, So I have recently diverged from the nonprofit and uh, my own way of personal growth. So I felt that it was better to partner with Steve with East Coast Hemp Supply rather than continue on with my own brainchild. But reaching out to politicians and public figures have been really interesting because some of them do not want to put their neck on the line because there's so much stigma, stigma with the word hemp that people still think it's marijuana. And this issue is mostly in the elderly generation. Um, We see that most uh, people over the age of 40 actually have no idea what the word hemp is um, and still refers to it as the word dope. Um, So reaching out to um, politicians would actually be a great idea because they're the ones that could stand in front of the people that need to start writing better laws to help get this plant more accessible to the public. 20, 30 years from now, our politicians will be able to make a distinction between hemp and marijuana. Uh, Do you think that lobbyists for uh, potentially competing markets like big uh, beverage companies or that sort of thing could be pushing for hemp and marijuana to be lumped so that they are not uh, receiving any competition? If there was as much money put towards the education of hemp that has been lobbied against it, I think you would see a revolution in the way that people actually thought about it. But where where is that like where do you suggest that money comes from? Like can you guys group together as is there a trade association for people that that farm hemp um where you know folks like you and maybe others in the state of North Carolina or nationally can band together and sort of uh, have a collective voice to fundraise and get the message out, et cetera? Yeah, there's actually quite a few out there, actually. So uh, national, the National Hemp Association uh, has, has been in charge of those efforts uh, from the very beginning, and which, as, which actually has, has also led to other uh, 501c6 uh, trade organizations to be made. There's even one in North Carolina called the North Carolina Industrial Hemp Association, and they were the really the ones in charge of uh, bringing the, the hemp uh, movement back to uh, North Carolina, uh, with all the farmers getting together to talking to politicians, uh, et cetera. Was this association at all involved with uh, the event that you guys conducted yesterday? It was not. Uh, we actually did it on our own accord. Uh, the Nash, uh, I applaud what the North Carolina Industrial Hemp Association has done, along with the uh, help of Bob Crumley, uh, but we uh, aren't currently members of the association uh, due to the high cost of membership. What is the cost of membership? Well, it's $500, uh, I believe. Per, annually? Uh, I believe annually. Um, 
I mean, to me, it's like I don't have five hundred dollars, right? When I'm I'm starting a company, um, but the farmers, I mean, mostly I guess these farmers would, which is why they've joined. But our current farmer, um, he's a, he's a small farmer, so he's got you know first buy the seed, which costs it a lot, and then you know prep the fields. I mean, there's a lot that goes into this, and so uh, I mean. In a sense, I, I'd like to eventually join because I feel like it'd be a great benefit with the information that we all have that we can go, uh, join together, uh, the joint forces, be able to tackle uh, some of these issues. So, okay, so why don't you uh, why don't you walk us through and tell us a little bit about the event that happened a couple of days ago? Awesome. So yesterday, uh, September 9th, yesterday was our first hemp harvest uh, in Harnett County in nearly 80 years. Uh, the event in Harnett County is. Uh, is where now? Harnett County is the county right beside Wake County. Okay. Uh, in Dunn, North Carolina. Oh, it's in Dunn. Yes. Uh, farmer Keith Dunn is his name from Dunn, North Carolina, funny enough. he uh, We were able to get out there yesterday uh, with the help of John, John Bartlett, Dr. John Bartlett from Campbell University uh, Biology Department. He brought out uh, 50 volunteers. Uh, so we were able to get the hands-on experience with the students, and I also uh, had pr- different professors come from NC State, as well as um, investors uh, in the industry, including a CEO, uh, Hemp Incorporated, uh, Bruce Perlowin. What are the roadblocks to making this business a success? That's an interesting question. Um, there's a few. I mean, for ones uh, we already mentioned is banking, receiving an investment to start up. Uh, it's very difficult in this industry due to the fact of um, due to the fact that the the stigma behind the the plant itself. So investors are very weary to get involved because of the uncertainty of the market. Is it a gray area of the law to farm this plant? Or yeah, it's absolutely a gray area. I mean, we're still talking we're still talking about the fact that this is a Schedule One drug under the under the Drug Enforcement Administration. Uh, and so their target, and for a long time, is cannabis. They want to go after everyone for, for this plant, which really is uh, it's, it's absolutely incredible how they're, they're, they're doing it. But uh, we're, that's, so that's one gray area, gray area that we're having, for sure. It's, it's probably the biggest one, to be honest, uh, because, like I said, these, the, 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 this, this discrepancy of state and federal laws uh, is really confusing for a lot of lawyers and a lot of uh, representatives that want to take part uh, in the industry. Do you think that there is more potential for economic stimulation from legal cultivation of the hemp plant than there is from DEA shutdown of hemp operations? Mm, yes, absolutely. Uh, we're seeing all across the country uh, different universities starting to really invest into the industry uh, in places such as New York, uh, South Carolina, Virginia, uh, all on the East Coast as well as the West Coast. Currently, there are 32 states with active state pilot programs doing research on the best agronomic practices uh, and and user markets for these uh, sorts of products. So cannabis prohibition is coming to an end, whether uh, whether, uh, people like it or not. And we're really looking forward to this uh, next green energy uh, movement. Were both of you there on site during the harvest? Yes, we both were. 
Well, what did you do? So, believe it or not, I was actually doing a little bit more managerial things, like being in the kitchen and helping set up food, um, making sure everybody was safe, not running around on golf carts, hiding in the hemp so field. You running- so you were running 50 people? Trying to, more like trying to feed them, water them, make sure everyone's happy and content, and also being the liaison for people our age and connecting them to uh, more public figures such as CEOs and politicians. So I actually helped, did that as well. What are you guys going to do with the harvest? That's a very good question. Well, for this first year, um, we're actually going to send off the different parts of the marketable plant to two uh, different entities, the first being a Hemp Incorporated. Uh, Bruce Perlowin has um, stated publicly that he would buy the roots for 10% above market price. Who is that? Bruce Perlowin is the CEO of Hemp Incorporated. He's uh, really been the one to kind of jumpstart things here in North Carolina because of his facility in Spring Hope. Okay, so he's he's an industry, uh, a local industry uh, expert. National? He's a national expert nationally in the hemp industry. Oh yeah, he's been he's been everywhere. Okay, so he's renowned. Right. Okay. Um, he he's actually uh, the king of pot is what uh, he was called back in the seventies. Uh, so we can even get okay. into that. But, uh, okay. He okay. Cool. Smuggled marijuana back in the seventies to um, from California on the west coast, and he was the largest one at the time. So then uh, when he got in jail, he was deemed the king of pot, and since then he's kind of shifted his views towards the uh, industrial hemp movement. And uh, we're really excited because, one, he's been able to um, really um, jumpstart it here with the amount so, of uh, as well as David Schmidt. and uh, The Bob King Kermit of Pod founded um, Hemp Inc. It's and really, really uh, it's interesting because you spoke earlier about creating a uh, social distinction between marijuana uh, They told us and that hemp. they would buy it. Uh, so does it roots, seem then, like um, we also have two some other, sort of uh, alliance between the, the two could also be beneficial for the, the uh, market for, uh, promotion uh, of each agenda? Places such as maybe Whole Foods or any other places that carry uh, hemp seeds. Yes, I would say that um, on the medicinal side, if the two were to come together, I think it would provide a lot of benefits to the seriously um, the seriously troubled people who are obviously really sick, the terminally ill. Um, but you know, it's funny how, you know, I, I believe that, uh, marijuana is more on the medicinal side as well as hemp, but hemp has has a much more, uh, industrial purposes, which is really sparking everyone's attention because of all of the, the end uses, uh, it can really generate. Which bucket is your operation going to fall in, in the future? What's the strategy? Sure. We're strictly, strictly doing industrial hemp cultivation. Uh, we have no, we have no plans to. Uh, participate in growing cannabis above 0.3% THC because it is illegal in our state. Perfect. That's a pretty smart business move uh, on your part. I'd say so. I don't want to be thrown in jail for something that I, um, I feel I'm really informed about. And so uh, have, have either, have either of you ever felt threatened by uh, punishment by the legal system? I think there's always going to be that fear um, I've been, I've been learning how to cope with it. And, uh, honestly, I'm just doing what I feel is right. And what is also, you know, I'm, I'm also following the rules at the same time. I want to be extremely transparent in this as possible because I've been through, uh, different organizations here and there. And, uh, to be honest, the ones that aren't serious usually get weeded out. Uh, it's pretty easy to tell because there are so many rules. There are so many rules surrounding, surrounding this. And if you're not informed, then you're probably going to be left behind. Savannah, 
not pertaining to the cannabis industry. No, I feel like as long as you're following the laws, then you are protected by that. So you shouldn't fear the law as long as you are following it. So I, I have no fear for um, any legality on my end. So what what types of things can we make from the hemp plant? We don't have enough time in the day uh, to talk about all of that. Twenty five, the twenty, just uh, their top three. Twenty five thousand uses, but the most um, dominant ones would be for medicinal value, textiles, um, replacing the lumber industry with creating hempcrete, and then biofuels. So you can also take hemp oil um, and replace biodiesel with it. So I think those are the top uh, components of hemp right now legalization of marijuana if you poll it right now is at an all-time high about 50 59 percent of the population approves of that however i don't have any polling data on uh, what you guys are trying to do but from a political feasibility perspective um it it sounds like uh it sounds like you guys need to as an industry collectively bargain and hire lobbyists to make sure that you can get ahead of the regulations because I think a lot of people out there don't understand the difference between uh, getting high and then having, you know, materials and biofuels and all the types of economic things that you guys are talking about. So I have done some one-on-one market research with canvassing uh, the public and trying to understand how much of the public is actually educated on the subject of hemp. And it seemed to be about one in 20 people or one to 50 people even heard the word hemp. We're not even talking about understanding. And so then you get into like, you'll find one in a hundred people actually understand what hemp is. So there's going to have to be mass education um, to get people to understand, even before you start talking to lobbyists and politicians, they're going to have to be briefed on the differences of this plant to begin with. So how do we get it done? Starting with this, the radio uh, broadcast, um, having a hemp harvest, inviting key public figures, reaching out to universities, sending press releases out grinding every day and just constantly talking about this. And I started doing this in 2015 and there was not that many people on board. And just two short years later, there has been a lot more people um, initiating themselves into this industry because of education. So it literally just goes back to how can we educate the most amount of people at the same time about this subject? So when's the next harvest? Next year. At this time, uh, next year, uh, we'll, we'll be doing this all over again, and we'll be laughing at all of the, the, you know, the things we were stressing about from the first year. So each year, we're going to kind of learn and get better and better, and I think that's what's really uh, promising and going to be fun for us to figure out. I want to say congratulations to you guys for being pioneers in an industry and taking significant risks, okay? Because... Uh, you know, you're talking about getting your funds frozen and having to do workarounds to generate revenue and all that kind of stuff. Like, that's not easy. Um, and there's a wall of worries that you have to overcome to do this. So um, nice work. You hey, too. appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for coming in. I think that's pretty much all we have for today. Uh, I hope you guys have enjoyed the segment and keep it locked to 88.1 WKNC.
You're listening to Gen Ed, a podcast about general student issues related to North Carolina State University. Gen Ed is recorded from the production room at WKNC 88.1 FM, NC State's student-run radio station. My name is Colleen Keenan-Ferguson, the retiring podcast manager at WKNC. Today's episode is all about the transfer student experience at NC State. Did you know that one in five students who graduate from NC State transferred here from another university or college? Every year, more than 1,200 transfer students are admitted to NC State, and overall, their experience is unique compared to that of a student who is admitted right out of high school. For this podcast, I sat down with Michael Coombs, Director of New Student Programs, and Jenna Martella, Coordinator of New Student Programs. We talked about some of the issues transfer students face and the unique qualities that help them flourish and find success at NC State. I also talked with Jake Phillips, a senior studying structural and molecular biochemistry and environmental science. Jake transferred to NC State from UNC Wilmington in the summer of 2014. He gave me his perspective on what it's like transferring to NC State. For a full list of podcast episodes, be sure and follow us on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash WKNC881. Look us up on the iTunes store for full access to our downloadable podcasts. For more programming from WKNC, be sure and follow our blog, blog blog.wknc.org. Enjoy listening. I'm Jenna Martella. I'm the coordinator of New Student Programs. And I'm Michael Coombs, the director of New Student Programs. Okay, could you uh, walk us through the transfer process kind of briefly? Yeah, so real quick um, run through is that a student needs to decide whether or not they're interested in NC State University and then they apply to the university obviously through undergraduate admissions and admissions will look at their past history, whether it's one institution or many institutions their high school potentially, and then make a decision about whether the student will be successful here and then whether or not the student uh, matches kind of what the institution is looking for in um, their various majors. Do you think uh, transferring schools um, may lengthen the amount of time it takes for students to complete their degree? It very much depends on the program that they're going into um, and also what their intent and where they're at in their career interest and development. So some folks may go to a community college to get some gen eds out of the way, um, but still may come out and still be really looking at programs in different directions they could go with their career. So when that decision happens, is largely what affects the student's um, ability. Um, it also depends on what program they come into here at NC State. Um, so for example, some of our curriculums are specific to being four-year programs, for example, some of the ones in the College of Design. And so if a student really wants to go into that program, that may just be a contingency to matriculating into it. Um, But yeah, there's a lot of factors that go into it outside of that, as well as other pieces or requirements for their career if they're planning on doing internships or externships as a part of their time as well. I would also throw in that if you look at some of our surveys, most of our students are anticipating staying here two to three years. And when you look at their credits and ask them how are their credits are transferring in, most of the time it's meeting their expectations. So hopefully that means they're able to plan accordingly mm-hmm. and fairly accurately when they're making the plans that Jenna talked about. And obviously with some of those things like study abroad or internships, co-ops, the great thing is we want them to be participating in that. We want them to be getting those experiences. 
So it may impact their the length of their stay, but at the same time, there's a trade-off there mm-hmm. that's um, some pretty successful students obviously taking advantage of those opportunities. So we want to encourage that as well. And if it allows them to be more prepared as they're going into the workforce, mm-hmm. that, like Michael said, that trade-off can be certainly beneficial than that extra semester or however much time ends up being. Do you have any advice for students? Do you have any advice for students who may be interested in transferring to NC State or are already in the process? Yes, we do. So I'll go through a couple things. I know Jenna has some some thoughts as well, but a couple of things. If you're looking at kind of beforehand, I would say students should do their homework. So understand the academic environment they're coming into, if this is a great fit for them as a research institution, the program that they're coming into, what does it take to be successful there? What are the requirements? How does it fit into their current plans and their future plans? I would also say do their homework on what type of institution it is culturally. Mm-hmm. Understand what um, the NC State community stands for or values. Is that mm-hmm. something that aligns with their personal values? Um, understand the opportunities that are they're coming into and does that align with what they're looking for? A couple other things. Ask questions about the process, whether it's admissions or orientation, and once they arrive, Mm -hmm. um, asking questions because the reality is we can't read students' minds, Mm -hmm. and so we don't necessarily know what a student has questions about or what a student needs um, without that communication. Um, One of the things I, I think, too, is expect to be challenged academically as well as kind of socially and emotionally. Mm-hmm. Um, transition's difficult at no matter what point in your life it is, whether you're a you know, 65-year-old who's retiring or an 18-year-old transferring in or a 20-year-old transferring in. So expect to be challenged. Obviously, academically, the classes may be different. The expectations may be different. The course of study may be different. So realizing that, um, understanding that transitioning to a social, a different social environment is obviously can be difficult, so how are they going to engage in our community? How are they going to connect with other students and faculty and staff? And then obviously emotionally, um, realizing that there may be obstacles that they encounter, but they have the ability. They've shown it in previous institutions, so they have the ability to be successful. It's just having that self-efficacy to realize, I can do this, and it's okay. It's just a setback. It's not the end of the road. And then the last thing I would say is plan. From the get-go, plan what type of academics you're going to be um, utilizing here or what kind of course of study you're going to take. But also plan your your co-curricular that Jenna talked about earlier. So figure out how do I take advantage of study abroad? How do I take advantage of cooperative education or undergraduate research? Or just how do I get involved on campus? How am I going to participate in intramurals? Mm -hmm. Um, Or how am I going to do my time management to go to the gym and, and keep that wellness aspect up as well? So those would be my thoughts. Jenna? I would say reflect upon your experience at the institution or institutions you've been at in the past. Um, obviously, there's a variety of reasons students may choose to transfer, whether it's they have a, we have an academic program here that they didn't have or they didn't have a good experience in that one of those social, emotional, transitional realms at their previous institution or institutions. And so what did or didn't you get in your previous institution? What do you want to continue to have? Or what opportunities are you hoping to take advantage of that maybe you didn't have before and look for what resources or ways you can learn about that. So if you're coming into orientation, you've made the decision to come here looking for sessions that are going to help you, help you answer those questions, um, utilizing resources that can help you and whether that means taking extra time to talk to your academic advisor, whether that means coming to programs um, that we've designed to help you figure out that new institution and the way it works and some of the structures because often that can be the challenge to getting those into those pathways of student involvement. I would also say um, take advantage of opportunities 
opportunities to connect with other transfer students, unlike first-year students where there's a lot of first-year students coming in at one time. You can kind of tell first-year students oftentimes they're wearing the T-shirts, you know. Um, transfer students is not a visible identity. And so when you have opportunities to find folks who may have similar experiences to you, who may be able to relate with some of your same um, struggles or difficulties, take advantage of meeting and engaging with that population. Um, and then also just getting involved both academically and socially. Um, a lot of times there's that pressure that I may have less time here at the institution than a first-year student coming in, so I need to only focus on my career. I only need to focus on my academics. But as Michael discussed, that transition happens academically, it happens socially, it happens emotionally, it happens in every aspect of your life. And so finding ways um, you can help balance that with involvement on campus, using resources on campus, um, even things as simple as the fact that NC State has free tutoring and a counseling center that are both opportunities for students to engage and receive resources and support that you may not have had at your other institution. Finding out what those things are, what you're going to need, and how you can be proactive about that as you're making that transition on the front end instead of waiting till you may really need them and haven't even done your homework. And so obviously knowing that they're there nonetheless, but it can always make it a little less stressful um, if it's part of the planning process and not reactive. So are there any kind of general issues you see transfer students dealing with every year? I would say I kind of touched on the last question, but not having enough time in that students putting surmounting pressure on themselves that a traditional first year student who's like, I've got four years, which seems like a lot of time. Um, so coming in already with that additional pressure or feeling like they're behind, um, I think is a pretty general um, experience that we hear from a lot of transfer students. I think also finding community in the institution, um, feeling as though you're not coming in with a bunch of other people at the same time, and also the variability in the transfer experience. Um, so sometimes folks have come from a community college, sometimes people have been to two or three institutions, sometimes our transfer students are folks who didn't go to college for a while and are coming back, and so there's it's much less of the I'm 18, I'm coming from a nearby, you know, it's, it's much less of a streamlined process, and so finding the people who have similar experiences, connecting with them, um, and really making your home here and then just learning a new university structure. Um, the benefit of being a transfer student is you've seen college before where a first year student, it's all brand new. But sometimes having seen college before, depending on what kind of institution you were coming from, where it was in the country, what it was like, if it was a research institution or a liberal arts institution, can totally look different. And so coming in and maybe thinking like, okay, I got this, and then everything being totally different can certainly be a hurdle for students. And so being able to really work through, well, what do I do now? What can I work off of and build off of um, and not getting bogged down by some of the differences, which I think are sometimes more exacerbated and spoken about than the things that students already come in and the knowledge and the value that they already have and the experiences that they've already had at other institutions. I think the only thing I'll add on to that, because Jenna went through a lot, so that was great, is the idea, I think, especially kind of going back to what we were talking about academically, socially, emotionally earlier, I think when you look at it, it's it can be difficult. It can be very exhilarating for a lot of students because they get to start over. And so they're looking at it kind of like high schoolers do when they come into college, right? Like, I get to, I get to be a brand new person. Um, a lot of times I think our transfers are looking at it too. They, they get to start over. They get to kind of create new friend groups, which is all amazing. But I think there's also potentially a loss of identity. So going along with what Jenna was saying about different students, so you might have a military veteran who's transferring to NC State 
who's leaving the military, and that can be a significant loss of identity Mm -hmm. from the military to higher education. And even with students coming from the community college, they have established relationships, whether it's advisors, faculty, friends. And so there could be a sense of loss or um, a sense about it, the of dread about the changing relationships. And so it's how do we support students coming in or how do they support each other in regards to understanding that it's different, um, that doesn't make it better or worse, it's just different. And how do we cultivate those relationships with our faculty, our advisors, or fellow students in a way to create another sense of identity that matches kind of where they are in their life at NC State as well. Generally speaking, do you think most students who transfer here are overall satisfied with the transfer process and their experiences? Without overgeneralizing, I think um, a significant number of students are happy with their decision to transfer and are happy with their experience. I think it's always a loaded question because they are so variable. I think it depends on where they are in their education as well and what's just happened, right? So someone who thought they had credits transferring, but the credits didn't, and now they're needing to take an additional course, might answer that very differently when they just found that out versus two years later when they've completed the course and it moved on. Or someone who struggled to connect with other individuals, but maybe now has finally found that friend group and feel supported um, on campus. So I think it kind of depends on where they are in that transition. Mm -hmm. But I think a majority of students who transfer in do feel satisfied by their experience and satisfied by their decision, whether it's academically, they're satisfied with their course of major and their career opportunities, Mm -hmm. or they're satisfied with athletics, or they're satisfied with involvement in those things. I think, for the most part, to overgeneralize, yes, they, they, um, they have been satisfied with that. We are bringing in successful students, whether they are successful in high school and their SATs prove it, whether they're successful in college courses and their transcripts prove it, we're bringing in successful students all along the way. So just because someone came through a transfer admissions doesn't mean that they weren't capable the first go-round or they didn't want to come here the first go-round, but they've actually proved themselves in a college classroom, whether community college or a four-year whatever. So we're not bringing in students that happen to find a back way in. Mm -hmm. We're bringing in students who have proven Mm -hmm. their worth and their success in college classes and are now bringing that to NC State, which is a great thing because we're being able to obviously increase the population we have while at the same time bringing in amazing students just through a different way. And the students are continuing to be successful here, too. We have an organization on campus called Toss Sigma National Honor Society, um, which I advise. And one of the requirements is to make a 3.5 GPA in your first semester on campus. And we've had two rounds now. And the organization has had, has 170 members who've elected in. But as far as invitees, um, our first year we got to go back um, two years back so that you could start the organization. And going two years back and then looking at this year where we only went one year back, which is the traditional, the number's almost the same. So we're having even more students being successful after that first semester every year, which is good to know because it's great to get here and be like, cool, I'm here. And then if you're not successful, that's not, you know, not great. But the fact that students are high achieving coming in, they're remaining high achieving students, um, I think contributes to that. Like, are you happy here? Are many students, I mean, obviously when you're doing better, you tend to be more happy with your experience anyway. But yeah, so it's, it's exciting to see that as well. 
so I guess as a high schooler, like many high schoolers, I didn't really know what I wanted to do in college. Yeah, I didn't really know what I wanted to do in college, so I initially went to Wilmington for film school because that was a hobby of mine back then. Within my first semester, I realized that film school was not for me. Um, I just lost my creative edge, I guess. So I switched to biology, but Wilmington, of course, is a really good marine biology school, and their biology program was just kind of like a watered-down version of marine bio, and I really didn't care about fish, so... I uh, decided to look at my other options, so I applied to NC State and UNC and eventually decided to come to state. But due to some bureaucratic things, I actually had to come in as an environmental science major uh, because I hadn't taken chemistry yet, and there's these transfer uh, requirements. Uh, I came as environmental science, and then I initially ended up doing biochemistry as well. So So do you think it was overall better or worse than applying to college right out of high school? I don't know. It was kind of complicated trying to find my high school transcript again because they require that. And like it had been about a year since I had had access to that. So I had to like get back to my high school and try to figure that out. But I feel like uh, it was a lot less stressful because I wasn't like applying to several different schools. I was only applying to two different schools. So it was uh, a little bit easier. Um, And, you know, if if all else fails, I still was at UNCW. I still was you know at a college. So it wasn't really a lot of stress this time around. So what were some of the requirements you had to fulfill in order to complete the transfer application? Uh, all the obstacles I had to overcome. Um, you had to have, obviously, you had to have, like, a strong GPA for your major. And, like, at NC State um, is very helpful. They kind of break down every department, what they want to see on a transfer application. And uh, I think you had to have, like, two biologies, a chemistry, a calculus, and you know, in English, and like a math, like another math or something like that. Um, so that was basically all the things I did my freshman year. I kind of knocked most of those requirements out, except for the chemistry, which, you know, they required for biology. Overall, how was the experience for you? It was kind of weird starting over again. Like, I obviously had friends who came to NC State, but like, I feel like after you finish high school, you kind of like lose touch with everybody. So it was kind of weird coming back into a new school where I really didn't know anybody. And uh, I wasn't living in a dorm, so I wasn't really going to meet anybody. So that was a little weird at first, but I met a few people in the summer classes I took before, like officially um, transferring here, and it was kind of hard leaving. It was like a kind of a weird decision, like, do I want to stay at Wilmington where I've made all these friends and like, you know, kind of establish myself there, like, you know, start all over as a sophomore, transferring to a whole new school. So I literally flipped a coin like over it. Like I had, you know, I just found out I was accepted finally to NC State. And I was like, well, shoot, like, do I, you know, do I go back to Wilmington or do I go to State? And so I, uh, I flipped a coin. It's like, hey, mom, I'm going to State. <laughs> so that's how that happens. Yeah, yeah. Rutherford B. Hayes is my, uh, I have a little presidential dollar coin and it's never scared me wrong. All my top life decisions, flip of a coin. So were there a lot of resources at NC State that made transferring a little bit easier for you? Yeah, I mean, um, there are several programs and clubs that I knew about and wanted to join prior to coming to NC State, and so getting involved with those after transferring helped me uh, meet a lot of really interesting people, and there's a lot more opportunities here at a larger school than there is at uh, like Wilmington, which is a lot smaller. I don't know, I guess going back to like uh, all the people I've met freshman year, I think that's a kind of a very unique experience that you only get to go through once. Um, And I lost touch with almost everybody from Wilmington, which is unfortunate because there were some really cool people. So I do regret abandoning that ship, I guess. But overall, I think State is a much better school for myself. Definitely do it because State is the best school. This isn't propaganda. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Gen Ed. 
For additional information about the transfer student process at NC State, please visit admissions.ncsu.edu slash transfer. Follow us on all social media, WKNC881. The music in today's podcast is Take Me Higher by Jazar, and their music can be found on freemusicarchive.org. Thanks for listening. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on 88.1 WKNC HD1 Raleigh. I'm Nick Weaver, joined by Marissa Jordan. It's time for some local trivia tidbit. So to start off, we're going to talk about Ali Reza Faranakian. Is that correct, Marissa? Yes, it's Faranakian, um, who is a former Saturday Night Live writer and a UNC alumni. And will open his third People's Improv Theater space by November at 462 West Franklin Street. And uh, I know this doesn't exactly relate to NC State, but, you know, got to give uh, credit where it's due to UNC. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's nearby. It's the triangle, after all. Uh, Fernakian is, uh, I definitely said that totally wrong. I'm never going to get that right, so just prepare yourself. Is holding an open meeting at 7 p.m. Monday, September 11th. That's tonight uh, on Franklin's, Franklin, Franklin Street space to meet the community uh, and share more information and let more people know about meetings for teachers and administrators. The new venture will fill an entertainment vacancy created when DSI Comedy Theater closed in August after 17 years in Carborough and Chapel Hill. I have not heard of that venue. I haven't either. I'm honestly not super aware of the comedy scene in uh, the triangle but i would like to learn more if anyone would like to contact us about that yeah it feels like one of those things that goes under notice there's so many comedy clubs that you see all over the place uh you know whatever the comedy shack is that's down in greensboro that i pass all the time when i'm back home and i think you know who goes to that why don't we ever hear about it it's uh it's got to be a, a sort of a subsect of nightlife that doesn't get enough attention shown on it either way the new venture is something of a homecoming for Faranakian, who grew up in the small-town North Carolina communities of Danbury in Stokes County and Advance in Davie County. His parents still live in Advance. Faranakian moved to New York after being hired as a writer at Saturday Night Live, obviously, in 1999, and three years later opened the original People's Improv Theater in Chelsea, New York. The People's Improv Theater expanded to the Flatiron District in 2010. His body of work also includes theater, commercials, and television shows such as Law & Order, 30 Rock, Inside Amy Schumer, and Adult Swim's Delocated, and a number of films from The Bourne Legacy to The Edge of Darkness, Arthur, and American Gangster. So if you are a comedy enthusiast and you didn't snatch your tickets to John Mulaney, you should probably check this out. Yeah, they added a second show on that. That's going to be really fun. Oh, did they actually? Yeah, I oh. I want to get tickets, but they're probably going to be sold out as we're speaking. It's for January 26th at the D-Pack. So if you want those tickets, uh, hop on your phone like right now, dude. Well, anyway, it's good to see that the triangle is coming around to comedy. But I guess that concludes our local trivia tidbit. And it is now time for Today in Remembrance, which is a special history segment today since it is 9-11. We would like to take a moment to remember all the victims of 9-11, all the civilians, first responders, firefighters, 
police officers, families, and loved ones of the victims. And we will now take a moment of silence. Thank you all for taking that moment with us. Um, obviously, we know this is a really sad moment for our country, and uh, it's always important to remember those who were lost on that day. Mm-hmm. Now, moving on in uh, the hopefully most tasteful transition that we can find, uh, we're going to talk about hopscotch for a minute. Uh, Marissa and I both attended over the weekend, uh, I as press and her as a volunteer. Uh, and uh, yeah, so we went to a lot of different shows uh started on thursday you were working friday and uh yeah so that was just me on my own for that day but uh i we also both saw a lot of people together on on saturday and i came back for cloud nothings on sunday so i think what was the first thing that we went to it was uh pat jr right yes uh he is is he a local rapper i wasn't familiar. yes yeah actually so pat jr uh used to be represented by wolf tracks was which was an artist uh music association sort of like independent artist promotion agency run by nc state students i was one of the like first few members uh and pat jr was one of our like only big artists to sign up with the group so i actually made his press kit that he used for a while in conjunction with another person who finished it off for me but uh that's a weird little connection that we have i was reached out before uh reached out to by one of like his press people before the festival and she said hey do you want to interview pat jr i was like i'd love to i can't though that's a huge conflict of interest uh but you know, I thought that was funny, but he had a, he had a really good concert, and then uh, oh wait, uh, before you continue, let's play a little bit of uh, Pat Junior's music. Right. Yeah. So it's coming up now. This song is uh, what is it called? It's called Better Days yeah. by Pat Junior. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. Uh, see if we can get it to go. Uh, either way, it was uh, it was a really good show. Um, God, who else did we see? We saw Sound of Series, who um, they're kind of like an ethereal electronic project, I guess. Right. So they were in Fletcher, uh, which is the side wing of like the Raleigh Symphony Orchestra building, whatever it's called. Maimondi. Yeah. Um, and it's super like... So the weird thing about Fletcher is that it's not—it's obviously not like an indie rock concert venue, right? It's not meant for like teenagers to come in and like woo party and drink, but it's—it's uh, it's a seated venue. It looks like an opera hall, and yet you have these indie groups and these rap groups and these different. We also saw Mount Erie there, which was a bit more fitting, but uh, you have these various groups that are coming through that are taking the space that just feels so weird for them to inhabit and and, and using it for the festival. So uh, Sound of Series was it? Mm-hmm. Uh, where this kind of EDM indie rock combination group, uh, and they the whole theater was pitch black, just absolutely you cannot see like five feet in front of you. But they were doing this crazy light show with like um astral projector type hologram thing that it was it was making these weird mathematical three D constellations projected right in front of the lead singer, and she would mess around with it with a tambourine in her hand. It was bizarre, just crazy. Um, I'll see if the music is working again. We have that uh, sound of series on our playlist, too. All right, let's give that a shot. 
<laughs> I, I wouldn't say I would listen to them on my own time. I guess you're probably not missing out that much, but it was a cool show. Um, we also saw Mount Erie there, like we said. That was... Very sad. That was that was depressing. That was... You come in feeling like, ah, oh, it's a music 